Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, March the 29th, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for a listener, I'm sorry, an expert counsel Q&A show. And I've got a great lineup for you today, a good, uh, good assortment of stuff from the expert counsel. Got Stephen Harris on generator fuel storage and bartering generators in a shit hit the fan. We got John Pugliano on real estate that borders federally owned lands. Uh, kind of sticks with my discussion about military installations yesterday, but in a different viewpoint. I've actually been asked this question so many times. I'm like, John, you give your take on it, because I'm just going to say the same thing I always say. Uh, I got developing a home safety plan from retired law enforcement officer Steve Wise. Dealing with BPH, that would be an enlarged prostate from an old man. Old Doc Bones will talk about dealing with that without going the pharmaceutical route. Patrick Rohrman will talk to you today about understanding stainless steel quality and the limitations of stainless steel's rust resistance. Jeff Lawton's going to talk about managing land with prescribed burns, specifically land that's more of like hunting and recreational land. The advantages and limits of homeschool co-ops with Mike and Sue LaPrise, and I'm going to give you the concept of companion planning made simple. Somebody sent me a resource on Wikipedia, and it took me about three seconds to go, well, this thing here makes no sense. And we'll talk about how you can overthink companion planning. And what I, who the man I consider the absolute master of companion planning. I'll tell you who he is and how he did it and the project that I was on and watched him do it. And I think it will uh, it will make things abundantly clear that we should definitely use companion planning, but we shouldn't overthink it and we shouldn't make it too complicated. With that, let's go ahead and dig straight on into it. Today we're going to lead off with Stephen Harris with a bit of a Harris rant because somebody had the audacity to worry about ethanol and fuel. Steve, take it away. Hi, it's Steve Harris for the expert panel. I am answering two questions and one today for you because they're both short and they're both on generators. So let's start right out. Subject, proper fuel handling with portable generator or small engines in general. Details, I have a WEN, W-E-N, 2,000 watt inverter generator. I also have no access to ethanol-free gas in the area. Okay, stop the freaking witch hunt. Okay, ethanol, there's nothing wrong with ethanol fuel. It's not going to kill your generator. It's not going to degrade the fuel lines or the gaskets. Okay? It's good stuff. In fact, before there was ethanol, ethanol-free fuel, which had MTBE for an octane enhancer, which is what ethanol is in current fuel, MTBE was outlawed because it's a nasty chemical. You know, it's dangerous when concentrated and it contaminates groundwater so they went with good old pure ethanol so in the old days when you it was cold out you had a low level of gasoline in your tank and it got air in there and moisture and then the temperature changed and the moisture condensed and you had water in your fuel tank back in the 50s 60s 70s and 80s what did you add to your fuel to get rid of the alcohol stuff called dry gas yeah, dry gas mixed it all together, and you burned it, and it worked good. Do you know what dry gas was? Ethanol. 
Drag ass was ethanol. Nothing wrong with ethanol in your fuel. Going on. So I'd like to make sure the ethanol, <laughs> or the old fuel in general, doesn't start any problems with the generator. Is enough to use stable or PRI-G and not worry about draining? Stable? No, it's not enough. PRI-G? Yes, it's enough to put it in there. Put the PRI-G into the fuel tank, start it up, let it run for about 10 minutes, because the PRI-G has to mix with the gas, go through the fuel line, go into the carburetor, and then, if you want a generator, put away such that you can go up to it anytime, pull it once or twice, and it starts. That's the way you do it. And he goes on. Also, you should, uh, if you're doing that, so you want to pull it and start it every time, you should start it and let it run for about 15 minutes every month. So he goes on. Should I drain the carburetor or not use? Should I use fuel? Be drained from the tank. Uh, any sort of carb cleaning chemicals and additives? Am I overthinking this? Hell yes, you're overthinking of this. Okay? Here's all you gotta do. If you wanna put away a generator for long-term storage, such that it's gonna be fine, make sure there's oil in it, make sure there's fresh oil in it, make sure it's at the right level, drain out the gasoline into the proper storage container, and then turn on and start the generator because there's still fuel in the carburetor in the bowl and in the fuel line and let it run dry. You now have a generator perfect for stasis. It's perfect for long-term storage. When you go to use it, you're going to have to put fuel into it and pull, 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 pull until it primes and runs. But, okay, that's how you're going to store it for a long term. That's all you need to do. Also, is there a certain schedule a generator should be run on a periodic basis? If you're keeping it for a one-pull start, once a month for about 15 minutes. If it's in storage, it's in storage. It's in stasis. There's no fuel in it. It's drained. It's dry. Don't need to do a thing. The oil's not going to go bad. So that answers that. So, Steve, next question. Thanks to you and Jack, I now have a secondary and tertiary, that means third, backup generator sitting in my in boxes in my garage. Brand new, sealed, packaged, everything. Questions regarding the long-term storage and maintenance and also barter usage. Should I leave the new generators in the boxes until needed? No. Would you leave a gun in the box and not go to the range and shoot it until it's needed? No. You don't do the same thing for a generator. They, would they have greater barter, barter value if they were verifiably unused? Hell no. But what if they're missing components damaged in transit? That's why you open up and test it. Or have some other issues that would keep them from working? That's why you open up and test them. If so, they wouldn't be an effective backup, would they? No, they wouldn't. That's why you open up and test them. If I unbox both of the backups and start them to make sure they work, I'm committing to an ongoing maintenance of all three generators. If I leave fuel in them, I got to be sure to use stable and drain them. No. Okay. What are your suggestions regarding long-term generator storage and maintenance, especially regarding barter? Okay, here's what you want to do. And you, this is, all of you listen closely because this is how you get about five ounces of gold for a $150 generator. So it, crap has hit the fan. I walk into your garage and you're there. I said, I hear you got extra generator for sale. Yes, sir, I do. 
Well, I'm in the market for it. It's like, where is it? Right here. New in the box. New in the box. Does that have any oil with it? Nope. New in the box. Do you have any gasoline that comes with it? Nope. New in the box. Have you tested it? No. It's new in the box. Does it work? No, it's new in the box. What good is that damn new in the box generator to me? Not good at all. What you want to do is you got your generator on sale at Home Depot like Jack and I did and we all told you about. And you get it in and, you know, it's a $149 generator, 800 to 1,000 watt inverter generator. Nice little thing. You want to get that generator out and you want to fill it full of oil, which is usually 10W30. And then you want to get a couple more bottles, like two or three bottles of oil extra. They're only like three or four bucks each. And put those with the generator, with it filled full oil. And then fill it with gasoline, start the damn thing, and let it run for a couple hours. In fact, why don't you take some video on your phone of it running for a couple hours? I mean, take video of like it running for 30 seconds, running some work lights or something like that. Okay, now do what I told you to do for the other guy. Drain the fuel out, start it up, run it dry, she's in stasis. Go get yourself a really nice premium five-gallon gas can that's nice and tight. Fill it up with gas, put PRI-G in it, and get a simple siphon so far refilling the gas tank. So now when I show up and it's like, I hear you got a generator. Yes, sir, I do. um, Does it work? Yes, it does. You got oil for it? Yes, I do. I got oil in it, and I got three extra quarts. Does it come with gasoline? Yes, it does. Five gallons of gasoline. And here is a siphon so you can get more gas out of the walking dead vehicles that are lining the road and everything else. And you can change the oil every 100 hours. You'll be fine. Tell you what, here's a video of a working one. I got it. Okay. Now let's put some gasoline in this thing right now. Start it up, and you can see it work. Plug into some lights. Have a load on it. And you'll be happy. Okay, that's great. I love it. I want that generator. How much is it? Five bars of gold or whatever you want. You you can get any of it. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In the land of no power, the person with a spare generator and fuel and oil and the siphon to get more is king. So you can get whatever you want for it. His car, his vehicle, doesn't matter. So that about answers the questions for today. Don't forget about the Harris1234.com website. I'm uploading new content. I got quite a few new videos up there, at least probably two hours of new Harris videos. Plus I have the Harris one, I have the Harris approved video area, the concept that I came out with. If you like the Harris approved stuff on Amazon on the 1234 sites, you'll love the Harris approved videos, which I like got like 120 of them up there with all my commentary on them of why that video is so important and valuable to you. All my free stuff I've done with Jack is at Stephen1234.com for you to enjoy. And the premium, all my stuff that I sell is at Harris1234. It's $9.97 a month. There's a yearly discount. And yes, you can cancel anytime. Yes, you can just buy one month and cancel. No, there's no contract. No, there's no commitment. And you'll just want to keep on being a member month to month or year to year because I am putting my heart and soul and uploading lots of really great stuff up there for all my members and expanding it and growing it and it's just a lot of fun plus you can get a hold of steve harris anytime you want even quicker than regularly and you can all get a hold of me you know you can always email me 
Oh, this is Steve Harris from the Survival Podcast. Thank you very much. Please send in more questions. I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Next up on the panel today, we have John Pugliano, and John is going to talk to us about considerations when buying real estate that is adjacent to borders, federally managed lands. Hey, TSP listeners, today our financial question comes from Keith in San Diego, and Keith has a real estate question. Now, this is on a particular topic that Jack has answered many times. I thought I'd weigh in on the subject and give you my two cents. Keith's question is, what are the advantages and possible disadvantages of property adjacent to federal lands? And what about the downsides? Things like people wandering onto your property or imminent domain. Well, Keith, first off, I want to say that owning land that's adjacent to or near federal lands is not as unique or rare of a find as many people would have you believe. And the reason for that is that an immense amount of land and property in the United States is owned by the federal government. Now, a lot of that is federal buildings and post offices, things like that that are in urban areas. But the reality of the situation is that the federal government is now and always has been a major landholder across the United States. In fact, presently, they own about 28% of the land mass in the U.S. And it may come as a surprise to people living in the East, but in my home state of Utah, the federal government owns over 63% of the land. And if you think 63% of Utah is an extreme number, look to my neighboring state of Nevada where the government owns over 80% of the land. Even in the Golden State of California, the government owns over 40% of the land, and it's just not something that happens out west. Something like 10% of the state of Michigan and over 12% of the state of Florida are owned by the federal government. So if you come upon a piece of property that's adjacent to or located very closely to federally owned land, well, it's really not that unusual. The other misconception about federal lands is that there just isn't one type. And that makes sense because we know how large and convoluted the government is, and so their land ownership and the management of that land is no different. Federal lands may come under the jurisdiction of the National Park Service or the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Bureau of Land Management, or even the Department of Agriculture. In fact, most people don't realize that the National Forest Service comes under the domain of the Department of Agriculture. It's kind of like the Marine Corps is part of the Navy. Hey, and speaking of the Marine Corps and Navy, the fifth largest federal landholder is the Department of Defense. And to what degree of secrecy and national security is taking place at that location? Well, the access to that property can vary drastically. So in short, it really all depends. And so as far as purchasing property that's adjacent to or close to federal lands, I would treat it as any other real estate transaction. And there's an old adage, a cliche in real estate, and the reason it's a cliche and that it's overused is that it's absolutely true. And that's what are the three most important things about real estate? Location, location, location. A property that's adjacent to Yosemite or Yellowstone or Zion National Park the dynamics of that property are going to be entirely different than a piece of obscure property that's located out in the back 40 in the middle of Oklahoma or Vermont. And a good way to determine what the property is going to be like in the future is to look at the way it's being used and managed today. And so if you're worried about people wandering across and accessing your property because it's located adjacent to federal lands, well, if you're outside the gate at Yellowstone, that's probably very likely to happen, but it shouldn't come as any surprise to you because when you go there and you walk the property 
and you observe the situational awareness around it, that's going to become very evident to you and you're going to see that occurring. But if the land that you're looking at is in a remote area, then it's very unlikely that you're going to get a lot of traffic across that property. And again, you're going to see that when you go out and walk the property. And the other thing to keep in mind there is seasonality. And Yellowstone's another good example of that because if you go to Yellowstone in July, you're going to see a high traffic area that's way overcrowded with people. But yet if you go to that same location in December, well, the park is closed and snowed in and no one's there. So do your homework. Understand what the traffic patterns are, what the seasonality is, and educate yourself on the specific regional differences because although something may be allowed or disallowed on a national park, doesn't mean it isn't authorized on a Bureau of Land Management. And also be aware that some developments also have sweetheart deals and grandfather clauses with these federal properties. I know of some areas here in Utah where property owners are granted special access to federal lands that are adjacent to these communities. The other thing I'd comment on as far as worrying about things like eminent domain, yes, that is a real and present danger. Anytime your proximity is closer to the mafia, you're likely to be affected by their heavy hand. But again, use your situational awareness and do your homework. Usually those things just don't creep up in the middle of the night. There's generally a long paper trail and a series of government actions that lead up to something like eminent domain. So by doing research on the area that you plan to move to, you'll probably be able to uncover any type of land battles that are going on. Now again, as far as negatives, what I would be more concerned about rather than eminent domain is just the overall land practices that are occurring in your general area. You know, it's probably unlikely that the federal government is going to come in and forcibly buy and take over your property under eminent domain. But what isn't unusual is that the bad land management practices may negatively impact you on your property. And one thing that comes to mind there is poor forestry management that can cause things like forest fires. And the problem with the federal government is they get to do whatever they want. They make up their own rules. And there's really no accountability and very limited recourse for you as an adjacent property owner. But hey, Keith, in general, I wouldn't treat buying property near federal lands any different than any other real estate transaction. Do your homework. Make sure the property not only meets the requirements that you want today, but also look forward to what your needs are going to be in the future and make sure you're buying in a good neighborhood so that the property values increase over time. Thanks for your question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. You know, my, my one real quick addition is I do think in many instances that having uh, public land nearby that is generally recreational, I mean, you know, you're talking about extremely high traffic land uh, with something like Yellowstone that John was talking about. But I recently looked at a property. It didn't work, but um, it wasn't adjacent to, but it was... You know, you basically the road that it was on. If you went a mile in either direction, you were in uh, national forest. Uh, as a getaway property, that would have been fantastic. Um, I highly doubt that anybody would have been on that land because it was not in the forest. It, 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 anybody would be on there by accident. Let's say, you know, it's the same kind of uh, trespassing you'd have to deal with any piece of land. Um, but uh, I, it would have been fantastic to have, you know, 10,000 acres of, of recreational land right there as well. So I think there can be advantages. As far as eminent domain, I mean, I, I don't really think, I think even John's a little off with, well, just because you're closer to federal lands is more likely. Um, what, 
would be the purpose of eminent domain in the situation. Obviously, if you're on the border right now, then you've got to worry about things like building the wall and taking land with eminent domain. But if you have something like a, a national forest or something, like let's say you're in Montana, you're bordering Bob Marshall Wilderness, there's almost no conceivable way that in that remote property you would be looking at any possible threat from eminent domain. And remember, I do think it's theft, but in general, when I've evaluated eminent domain situations, there has not yet been the case that I've looked at one where the person could not purchase an equivalent property with the money that they were given. Um, I still think it's theft. Don't think I'm defending. I'm just saying that like, you always have to have your plan B. And, and, you know, that's your plan B, I guess, in that situation. Next up, we have uh, thoughts on developing a safety plan for your home with Officer Steve Wise. Good evening, Jack and TSB listeners. This is Steve Wise, your retired law enforcement officer, offering advice and answering your law enforcement-related questions. Here's a little bonus that I'm sending Jack's way uh, that is based on a re- recent experience in my own home. My wife and, general, uh, and I are generally well-prepared, and we've made a safety plan at our house to help my wife feel safer in my home, uh, especially when I'm away for extended periods of time. We have built series of layers of security and, and have a plan to use these layers. The first layer is the exterior doors and windows. Uh, all of our hinges and locks have extra long screws installed to make kicking the door in much harder. While it's not impossible to kick in, uh, putting an extra three-inch long screw into the lock strike plate and in the deadbolt lock plate will go a long way to keep somebody from kicking in the door. Don't forget to put longer screws in the hinges as well. Uh, You don't have to replace all of them, but if you replace one or two on each hinge, you've really reinforced that door. Our next layer is our bedroom door. It opens inward, so I have time to put an exterior door lock on there as well, and I've reinforced the strike plate there, and I've put uh, extra long screws in the hinges. Uh, this way, uh, once again, makes it much harder to kick in. The third layer is in our house here is our bathroom door. Now, this door opens inward into the bedroom. This type of door cannot be, quote-unquote, kicked in. If you're working against the entire door frame to try to kick that type of door in. I've also put a lock on in that door and put the extra long screws in to be sure, but you, know, you can't really kick in a outward opening door. So inside the bathroom, we keep a gun safe with a firearm in there that my wife is able to access. And I have pointed out to my wife that anybody who has made it to this door and is kicking it in is certainly a threat. The other door gives her time to get to the firearm, to get her call out to 911, and to get law enforcement to start to respond. We know also by carefully analyzing the way that everything is laid out, that if she does shoot anyone coming through that bathroom door, there aren't any homes or areas where people would normally congregate on the other end. This makes it safer for her to shoot. If she does miss and uh, that bullet continues on in its path, it's less likely or, or actually very unlikely that it would ever hit anybody or anything other than the ground. Now, back to our recent incident, which brought this up. My wife was in the house getting ready to leave. Our our home is on the market, and she had to get everything packed up, and she's rushing around, and she's moving our dogs downstairs and getting them ready to, to, to do that final showing of the house uh, to hopefully sell it. 
And all of a sudden, you know, as she's back upstairs and one of her dogs comes back upstairs and my wife's not really thinking a lot about it, but then all of a sudden she hears something moving downstairs. There's things hitting stuff downstairs. She can, you know, hear things bouncing off of furniture and, and then all of a sudden something's coming up the stairs. The hair on the, on our dog's back starts to get raised, probably reacting to my wife's reaction and Something's going on, and then all of a sudden, the motion light we have in our hallway kicks off. Well, hey, she closed that bedroom door and got it locked, picked up her cell phone, got on 911, and called to tell them somebody was in the house. Now, you know, the house is on the market, so maybe somebody came early and didn't announce, and maybe we accidentally left a garage door open. We weren't really sure. So she's standing near the bath- bathroom door, her, her third level of, of response there, her third level of uh, security, and she's ready to close that door should anybody touch the door handle of the bedroom. She advises 911 that she has a firearm, and then suddenly after realizing that, that uh, you know what, the house is on the market, we moved all the firearms out of the bedroom so we could show the house. Hmm. Well, maybe we'd have to rethink that one. So shortly thereafter, the police did arrive. They didn't see any open doors or windows, so they said, hey, it should be safe for you to come out of the bedroom. And you don't have a gun, do you? No, we don't have a gun. So she comes downstairs. Once she enters the hallway, she discovers the source of the noise. Our second dog. She had gotten loose, and her leash was banging all around and was running into things and getting caught on things, and, of course, was bouncing up and down the stairs as she walked up the stairs to go see where Mama was. Hmm. Well, all is well. So my wife, though, she commented afterwards that even though she didn't have the firearm in the bathroom, she felt extremely calm. She knew we had a plan. She knew how to execute it. She had mentally thought about it. She wasn't scared. Work out a plan with your family and loved ones in advance. It doesn't have to be perfect, but that gives everybody in the house a feeling of safety and security because they can take actions and not have to think twice about, oh, shoot, what am I going to do? She had a plan. She executed it, and it turned out to be nothing, but she was ready, and it made her feel safer. So take some time. Reinforce the weak areas of your doors and hinges and lock plates, and, and then have that plan. And I hope it helps somebody else out. And remember, laws are different in every state. It's your responsibility to know your laws and, and obey them. My comments are my opinion based on my years of law enforcement experience. I hope everyone stays safe out there. All right, next up we're going to hear from an old man about prostates. Old Doc Bones, let's talk about BPH and alternatives to uh, pharmaceuticals for dealing with that illness. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way, the new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, plus the designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Garrett in New York, who writes, A quick question for old Doc Bones. Doc, do you have any suggestions for herbal treatments of BPH? 
Like a lot of men, I'm in my mid-50s and have started experiencing the classic early signs of BPH, benign prostatic hypertrophy or hyperplasia. However, I am not keen on starting on a regimen of alpha blockers, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, or phosphodiesterase-5 inhibitors with their well-known side effects. From what I've read so far, saw palmetto, beta-cetosterol, pigium, and ryegrass are common supplements used to treat BPH. Any guidance would be appreciated. No disclaimer needed. I am not your patient. You don't know me. I'm not looking for medical advice. Thanks, Garrett, in the Hudson Valley of New York. Garrett, as you get older, there are some changes that occur in most men, and one of them is that your prostate gland gets bigger. When it's not associated with prostate cancer, it's called benign prostatic hyperplasia, or hypertrophy in some cases, and although it won't kill you, it will cause some negative effects on your quality of life. Your prostate surrounds part of your urethra, the tube that carries urine and semen out of your penis. When you have BPH, the enlarged prostate can cause pressure around the urethra, and that makes it difficult to urinate. Most men notice a weakening of the force of the stream of urine, who hasn't at this age, right? And a hard time getting started, and like most basketball players, you might dribble when you finish. (laughs) Now, what isn't funny is that this can have some major significance for bladder health. Your bladder has to work harder to squeeze out the urine, and over time, The muscles that accomplish this can get weak. You might feel like you have to pee right after you went or have to urinate so frequently it really interferes with your life. The symptom most men experience, however, is having to wake up at night several times sometimes to urinate. This is partially because you're not completely emptying your bladder every time. If there's a lot of residual urine in there, your chances of getting infections increase. You might get fevers and pain, especially if the infection ascends to the kidneys. Your control over your urination also decreases with BPH. My father-in-law actually experienced a complete inability to urinate even though he felt he urgently had to go. And on top of all this, it happened on a cross-country flight. So you can imagine the agony. The prostate is evaluated by digital exam by a doctor or other diagnostic tests, including a test for something called PSA. If this result of this substance in your body is very high, it could be a sign of prostate cancer, something that my cousin has been dealing with lately. Benign prostate hyperplasia or hypertrophy, however, does not necessarily lead to prostate cancer. Another test is what we call a post-void residual measurement. This checks how much urine is left in your bladder after you go to the bathroom. First, you are asked to pee, then an ultrasound is done to measure the amount of urine left inside. If an ultrasound is not available, sometimes they put a tube in your urethra to see what drains out. So that's all about BPH, but your question is actually about natural remedies that might improve the condition. As you say, saw palmetto, beta-cetosterol, pigium, ryegrass, and others are common supplements used to treat BPH. According to the National Institute of Health, a few small-scale studies have suggested that saw palmetto might actually be effective for relieving BPH symptoms. It's pretty well tolerated, but there's still hard data that needs to be presented to really be able to say it's effective. Other substances you'll find in various plants, like like the saw palmetto, And these are cytosterols and phytosterols. Several studies have suggested that beta-cytosterol can relieve urinary symptoms of BPH, including the strength of urine flow. Pigeum comes from the bark of the African plum tree, and that's used in Europe a lot to treat BPH symptoms. 
Ryegrass extract is made from the pollens of rye, timothy, and corn. One study, men who were taking this stuff reported an improvement in their nighttime symptoms of getting up to urinate compared with those people that were taking a placebo. Besides these that you mentioned, the stinging nettle is an option, along with milk thistle, powder-dried cranberry, quercetin, red clover, flaxseed, and selenium. The problem, again, is the lack of consistent hard data of the effectiveness of any of these products for the symptoms of BPH. You might consider looking at your diet. Researchers found that men with diets high in fruits and vegetables, especially leafy dark vegetables, pumpkin seeds, tomatoes, things like that, seem to have less prostatic enlargement and less symptom. You might consider going with a prostate supplement. Now, these are combinations of substances, many of which I just mentioned. If one component doesn't work, another might, or the effect might be stronger when all these things are used together. For BPH, it should contain beta-cetosterol, saw palmetto, nettle, zinc, selenium, and antioxidants like vitamin B, D3, E, and the amino acids. Now, some people recommend a specific supplement that's called Prosta Relief, P-R-O-S-T-A Relief, R-E-L-I-E-F, by the company Research Verified. By the way, I have no financial interest in that company or any other connection. The company guarantees your money back for 365 days. That is a pretty decent guarantee considering the nature of the beast that there is not a lot of strong evidence one way or another with regards to the effectiveness of these substances. But you do get a bunch of these substances together. Why not give it a try? This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook and Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. All right, next up we have a question for Patrick Rohrman about the quality of stainless steel and what we should expect from a, uh, from a standpoint of rust resistance as well. Hey guys, this is Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Michael. His question is, is there any way to measure the quality of the metal used in stainless steel knives other than reading the brand name? Recently I forgot, left two stainless steel cooking knives out in my back garden for about a week. I'd used both of them for cutting the same vegetables and where they were left sitting in the same drainable surface. Both of them were approximately the same age and there had been a lot of rain. Both were marked stainless steel. When I found them a few weeks later one had some fresh rust, rust patches on it and the other was shiny clean as new. The rusty one cleaned up but there's now some pitting on the blade. Got me thinking not all stainless steels are created equally or maybe some are more equal than others. Any ideas on how a person might be able to identify the more non-rustable stainless steels used in an item before purchasing it, not just for cooking knives, but intended for any stainless item for kitchen or homestead. Thanks, Michael. Michael, thanks for your question. It's a great question, and not all stainless steels are created equal. Really, without knowing the exact grade of the steel, you're not going to know how corrosion-resistant it is. And the brand really is not necessarily a good indicator either because like with many brands, you've got the higher end models and you've got the cheap, more affordable models 
that are going to contain different steels. So what makes steel more corrosion resistant? And the answer to that is chromium. They add chromium to the steel and it helps resist corrosion. As you found out, just because it says it's stainless doesn't really mean a whole lot. Just like a high carbon doesn't say a whole lot about the knife itself. It's no different than uh, just because it's a Ford or a Chevy or a Dodge or, you know, pick your poison. It doesn't mean that it's quality or dependable. Every knife is designed with a certain task in mind. And if a customer is looking for something that's more corrosion resistant, then that's the characteristic of the steel that they're going to choose. The types of different steels is almost endless, but the, uh, the areas where they judge steel is, is the edge retention, the toughness, the corrosion resistance, and the ease of sharpening. And you're never going to have a steel that is going to rank high in all categories. So you kind of pick and choose which areas is the most important for you. Personally, if you're going to take care of your knives, then the corrosion resistance is on the lower end of the, the importance of the characteristics for me. I do want a steel that is going to be corrosion resistant, but not if it's going to sacrifice the edge retention or the toughness of the steel. So, um, as you know, XHP is my steel of choice for most applications because it's pretty decent on corrosion resistant, but its edge retention and the, uh, the other characteristics of it are what I find to be more desirable. So Michael, I hope this uh, will help you make a better informed decision when you are purchasing knives or other stainless steel. I appreciate your question and anybody else who has a question, feel free to send them to Jack and I will do my best to answer them. Thank you. This has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Have a great day. Next up we have a question for Jeff Lawton on managing land that you're using more as hunting land, kind of letting it be wilderness, that type of thing, without grazing and using prescribed burning uh, as land management. Uh, Jeff, take it away. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And um, I have a question here from someone who has 25 acres, uh, zone 4 or 5, typically southeastern USA, pine plantation that was logged about seven years ago. And um, that was half the property of the 25 acres. And the other half, everything was left behind. Loggers just pushed in windrows to be left. And um, they don't really have any plans to graze, although that might change, they say. But um, uh, they've been doing prescribed burns every two years or so. And they just want to know my opinion on this. Um, right at the moment, the plans are to leave the property in uh, wildlife habitat and hunting uh, with most uh, wildlife biologists and conservation recommending uh, a fire schedule. And um, they just want to know my my thoughts on this uh, as someone who uh, um, they consider someone who thinks outside the box, which is great. <laughs> I don't like to be thought of as a, someone who's uh, too much of a... a uh, 
conformer uh, with a lot of the standard destructive practices. So this is what I think, and I've done this before, and, and it works great. Um, I get a bulldozer on the site, um, and uh, I do some surveys, quick, easy surveys, just to mark out very basic contours um, across the land. Uh, you only need a few, and they don't have to be, uh, the bulldozer doesn't have to be absolutely perfect. You want a bulldozer with ripper on the back, I'd advise something like a D7 for this, this size probably. That's a caterpillar classification of a bulldozer that's about 25 tons. 20 ton to 25 ton would work fine. Don't want to go much bigger. Um, and, um, what I'd do is I'd push all that pine, uh, with those windrows up on contour and spread them out. And I'd even, you know, roll over them a little bit if they're a bit rotten. I wouldn't bother burying them with a hugel culture. Um, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, they're nice kind of habitat the way they are. Push them up on contour and then deep rip everything on contour with the rippers on the back of the bulldozer. Something like a D7 usually has three large rippers. Now, this is not subtle. <laughs> this is not like a uh, a, uh, a yeoman's plough. Uh, these, these are deep rips and they're going to go down, you know, two or three feet and they're going to be four to six inches wide initially. So it's almost going to be dangerous to walk across the land uh, if you're not aware that you might go up to your knee in a trench here and there. But that'll all sort of melt together in the end. But what, what it will do is it'll restructure the soil um, and, and um, absorb water very well into uh, the contour rip lines. More or less contour. You don't have to be perfect with this, but as long as the bulldozer's got some, uh, a few, you know, a peg every... Um, two or three hundred feet, um, just to aim at so he's getting more or less contour. It's fast, it's cheap. Um, and then you can just stand back and, um, literally let it rip into a recovery ecosystem. It, it'll come back fast, uh, through all kinds of interesting weedy species combinations, but then it will go on through to the original, more or less the original, um, ecosystem assembly of trees with a few novel inclusions, which is your typical, um, Fred Pierce wrote the book New Wild. And if you read the book New Wild, you'll see that, you know, a lot of the novel ecosystems have, um, buffers of invasive species, which are really the way the world's going to be saved because, uh, diversity is increased. If you count the hardworking immigrants and foreign, foreigners of the environment, um, and um, we'll all go that way in the end. We'll all realise that you have to count the foreigners and the hard-working immigrants um, in the population census of the ecosystem. Um, and um, you could you could go through after the rip lines uh, with um, pioneer seed um, to fat to fat track the succession, uh, whatever that might be. You could use native or um, um, approved, available, non-native species, uh, particularly fast-growing legume bushes, shrubs and trees. Um, what will happen is uh, it'll come up, you'll have to just be patient initially, it'll come up in a, in a sort of weedy mass. Uh, wildlife will come in and love that habitat. They'll love those windrows. Um, they'll kind of shape it for you a bit and it will go on through the weedy mass uh, to thin out into stretched up forest that'll have really good form. 
and uh, diversity will increase as as the wildlife in interaction increases and um, um, it'll be a wonderful thing uh, it nearly always is if we make that an initial interaction now just a bit of consultancy advice from me <laughs> to make this a valuable thing for you and uh, the potential future you could mark a track that doesn't get ripped necessarily or you could smooth the rip lines along a track and that track could start at the front gate obviously where you have access and go all the way around the property wherever you want it to roam and, and, and rove um, crossing valleys where it's appropriate and where you won't cause washouts or you can even make little dry dams or even dams so you cross on dam walls or even set up little pipes to cross valleys concrete not little pipes concrete pipes and and then all you do is you slash that i think in the south there you call it bush hogging but like slash that with a tractor tractor and a i don't know what you call it in the state so many different names we call them slashes but you you put your your grass your rough grass agricultural grass cutter on the back of the tractor or you hire somebody to do this and you just drive the track around the 25 acres uh one way and then back the other way so it's maybe, you know, it's four or five foot wide slasher on the back of a tractor. You just have a double, double slash and that's only maintenance you do. Now you'll be able to turn up at the property and go for a walk or a trail ride or if you ride horses or, or a, um, you know, your, your ATV or your quad bike or your mountain bike or your motorbike <laughs> or your tractor or four wheel drive if you've got one. Um, around that track and just enjoy watching it recover. And it, it's a walking track where you can tell the story of what you're doing. You can record it. You can take your guests for a walk. And, and it's your hunting track too. Your hunting lodges can be along that track. A lot of wildlife will use the track. Um, and um, it, makes it, it makes it something you can interact with. It's the only area you need to leave and keep clear. Now, also... You could actually plant higher quality trees along that track here and there to make that an enhanced corridor. This doesn't have to be on contour, of course. It can't be on contour if it's going right around the 25 acres. I, I'd, I'd keep off the boundary. I wouldn't go around the boundary because that's got an edge to somebody else that probably isn't being maintained the same way. I'd come in, you know, uh, 50, 100 feet at least and just do this nice... Not straight line, of course, nice curvy track all the way round so you can carry on enjoying the property as it, as it sort of naturally heals itself after your first bit of interaction with your bulldozer. Um, I hope this helps. I hope you do it. If you do, let me know. Record it. Let's watch it on Google Earth if you want to. Um, it's a beautiful thing and many of us could do it. Thanks. There you go. What Jeff just laid out there is it's something that I really actually hope to be able to do someday. I, I hope to be able to find the right uh, remote, remote recreational slash bug out property and, and manage it. I have some other ideas, but very, very similar to what he's talking about there, uh, self-managing in many ways. Uh, next up, I got Mike and Sue LaPreeze here on uh, homeschool co-ops for people that want to do homeschooling. 
but maybe they need a little help getting started or some extra resources. Mike Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live by the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSB community. Today's question is, what's the deal with homeschooling co-ops? Details. Our child is starting kindergarten this year, and we are strongly considering homeschooling. However, we have some reservations because it is way out of our comfort zone. Several people have mentioned co-ops to us as a way to ease into homeschooling. Would you recommend this as a way to help us and our child get acclimated to homeschooling? Also, pros and cons to co-ops? Thanks so much for all y'all and Jack do. If it wasn't for TSP, we wouldn't even be considering homeschooling. So the pros and cons of a co-op. And there are many of both. And each year, you have to decide for your family which one is going to work best. So, yes, co-op is a great way to start off homeschooling. If you lack confidence and you plan to use a curriculum, but you're not quite sure what you're doing. Um, it's a great place to go meet people, ask questions. And if your kid's been in school, then they'll get more friendship, you know, gathering. It's, it's a support system, which is really cool. Now, there's different kinds of co-ops. There's the co-op that you pay to take classes. It's not really a cooperative. It's a paid homeschool day at different places. And then there's a cooperative where each mom or dad volunteers to teach while their other kids are in classes. So you got to kind of think about which one you like. So one of the things that dads like about co-ops, <laughs> well, one thing is, is the kids love hanging out, right? Yes. They make friends. Yes. There are people that they get to see every week. So it's part of the socialization. Yeah. So not just going to church or other activities, scouts, but it's also, it's another way for them to get socialization. And quite honestly, my kids never cared what we were studying. They never cared about the curriculum. They loved going and being with their friends. Right. The second part is also as a dad and as a husband, uh, it, my wife has accountability. If it's a good co-op, the moms will hold each other accountable, making sure that they get their kids prepared so when they show up at the co-op, they're ready to do their work. Yeah, and it's great because when you have questions, like if something's not working for your kid and there's 20 or 50 other moms and there's always somebody who's had the same problem and they figured it out or together as a group of moms, you kind of talk through it and you get three or four ideas to take home with you. It's it's really good. Okay, um Bad side from dad's perspective, uh, co-op politics. Like anything else, if the group gets big enough, there's politics that come involved. Somebody wants to be the boss, and usually there is a leader of the group. But sometimes there's, uh, let's just say, there's politics that get involved. The other thing is, look at the co-ops that you're thinking about joining and see if they don't bounce from curriculum to curriculum from year to year, because that gets really expensive. So you want to see a co-op that's been established for a few years that is consistent in using the same curriculum. Right. It's it's not just a, a money saver. It's also a time saver because every time you bounce to the next curriculum, you've got to relearn that curriculum. So the more moms in your co-op that know that curriculum, the easier it is to get in and get the help that you're going to need. And there are different types of co-ops. So there's some oh. fun ones. Yeah. Right? Like there's um, chess co-ops, there's karate co-ops. So where kids are doing just a very particular activity. Yeah, so you go to the co-op that day, and you paid for one kid to go to karate, the other kid goes to art class, language class. There's a variety of things. Then um, some co-ops are driven by a particular subject, and it kind of gathers people in a history kind of way or a science-y kind of way or a college prep way. 
not, that's not our kind of co-op because those people are very driven about grading and numbers and stuff like that. And we enjoy learning with our kids and learning together with friends. Yeah, and just a couple of friends isn't necessarily a co-op. No. So if you get together with one or two friends, you'll find that it lacks structure a lot of times, yeah. and it's easy to, to cancel uh, yeah. on any given week. I'm right? not feeling good. No problem. we got other stuff to do. And so having maybe four people is enough to keep it going where you're meeting regularly. But you'd probably want, if you, especially when you're first starting out, you'd like to get to a well-established one that's a pretty good size. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Well, except kindergarten or first grade, you could join with a couple of friends that you meet and just kind of start developing something on your own if, if you're that kind of person. But if you make plans to meet and then you don't meet, your kids get discouraged. Like right now, we're, we're working on getting the chicken pox. I think we've got them, but I won't know till next week. And so I don't know if we'll miss co-op or whatever. You know, it's just that's how life works, though. OK, so and then many homeschoolers are homeschooling because their kids have delays or they excel academically and they don't fit in the government model. So it's really important to know when you're going into a co-op, what kind of co-op it is and how much leeway they give for that do they place kids by their age do they place them by their ability and um figuring that out what's best for your kid i you know there's pros and cons on either side of that also i actually had a mom ask me to put her kid in the older class because he was really tall one time and i said we don't place them by how tall they are but she had other problems okay so make sure your kids, um, as they get older, you keep evaluating their needs because it's going to change. They might be like really hands on when they're little or they might be science driven. And so if you have one kid, it's much easier than if you have multiple children. And so you just got to look around and see what's going on. OK, so also there's times when you're going to need to take a break from homeschooling. Your kids need a break. There's like we moved and we were building a house. And so we homeschooled with one friend that year. That's how we know it's easy to drop out. when You just got one friend coming and say, oh, we're busy. Build, we're putting walls up today. So um, so we've taken breaks off and on. And it's good and bad. It's just depending on how your life is going at the moment. Yeah. And one of the frustrations I have with co-ops are the ones, the homeschool co-ops that follow the they follow the government school. It's the same structure. Schedule. Same schedule. Uh, we like co-ops where our schedule is different because when the government schools are on spring break, and that's like most of the kids, you know, if you go to the zoo or anything, those weeks are packed. And we go, uh, our spring breaks in our co-op are off of those so that when we're going, it's a lot less crowded. Right. So pros and cons, there's all kinds of good. I would say co-op is a more pro than a con for most homeschool families. And especially starting out, it's a great way. I mean, it we didn't is. have a co-op when we started. There were no there were no co-ops when we first started. So uh, as they developed in, as Sue developed co-ops herself, um, yeah, they were, they can be very enjoyable. Yes. I mean, it's, it, it's a great, a, a great tool and we would highly recommend them. Yes. Just find the right ones. Okay. With that, that was Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com. Back to you, Jack. Short and sweet. So I wanted to uh, talk to you guys today about companion planning, and, and, and specifically due to a question that I was asked. It really wasn't a question. It was more of a resource that came in from Chris. And uh, he said, as you're always talking about companion planning, I've been wondering what are good plants to plant with. I found a Wikipedia page 
compiles all the information in one document, albeit very long. Wanted to get your thoughts on it and let you share it if you found it helpful. Thanks for what you do, respectfully, Christopher. Well, so I looked at the Wikipedia page, and keep in mind that Wikipedia can be edited by anybody. So you can right now go on Wikipedia and change stuff, and if you change stuff like an ass clown, they will block you by IP and ban you and not let you do it anymore. Um, but still, because I wanna, I wanna, you know, at least not completely rip this thing apart over this one thing, but. So I'm scrolling through it, looking at the recommendations, and my most interesting recommendation that I wanted to look at was, you know, what it says not to plant things with. So I get to the line for brassias, brassias, avoid. So don't plant them with mustards, nightshades, which are tomatoes and peppers, pole beans and strawberries. Um, many of you just went what? And some of you are like, I don't get it. Mustards are brassias. Mustard is a brassia. This guide, this is supposed to be this definitive guide on on um, on Wikipedia, says do not plant mustards with brassias. And it says don't plant brassias with brassias. And then they continue to, you know, name some of the individual brassias like broccoli and Brussels sprouts and cabbage, which are redundant. And the only thing they say not to plant them with is they don't say not to plant cabbage with grapes. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of done at this point with the intelligence or lack thereof behind this resource. Um, and I'm going to tell you my view on companion planting. About... Ten years ago, when I started doing this show, I started researching everything that I could, and companion planning was one of them. And I did shows on everything, and I based a lot of it on experience, and I based some of it on research. And I would say the companion planning shows I did very early were based on a combination. And while they were based on experience, the research went along with the experience, and the experience went along with the research. So if... The research said to do something, well, I did it. If it said to plant, you know, peas with carrots, then I did that. And if it worked, then I said it was right, and it worked. And I discovered permaculture as well, and the concept of polyculture, which is so much more than, than companion planting, but it really is. It's, you know, it's, it's like, it is companion planting on steroids. Polyculture simply means that we have many different plants that are all growing together uh, in a given system. And you kind of lose the whole concept of put this with that and don't put this with that when you do polyculture. So I started to kind of play with that. And then I got to go see the person that I consider the grand master of polyculture. And that is Sepp Holzer. I got to go on a project with him in Montana. And while there were certain things about him I really didn't like after that experience, and I really didn't consider him a very good teacher, I actually feel that he wasn't, as a teacher, very respectful of the people that spent lots of time and lots of money and went through a lot of hell in many instances to travel to such a remote place just to be there with him. I don't feel that he really values the student. 
And part of that may just be the whole German-Austrian thing. The teacher is not to be questioned. And, of course, the biggest thing students want when they come to a workshop like this is to ask you questions. That's not to question you. It's to get your answer. And I think maybe part of it was he's not used to that. He just wants to tell you what to do, and you shut up and do it. And I don't think that he understands that people don't spend you know, $800 to spend two weeks planting potatoes. That's, that's not what people were looking for. However, I did get to see the project go in, and I did get to see how he planted. And I thought that I was intensive in my polyculture plantings at that point. And we put the potatoes in, and we put the shallots in, and we put the onions in, and then he put the seed, and then the bigger seed, and then the... And it was like... It was like over a, like four kilometers of hugel, swale, hugel mounds, right? And I, I have never seen so much in so much density planted at one time. And, you know, you did learn if you listened. And that was, I think there was a problem on some of the students' side, too. They want to ask, you know, you're here to talk to Seth Holzer. You want to ask about Masanuba Fukuoka. Like, he's, I'm here to teach you what I do. So I did try to listen and to try to learn. And what I took away from what he was doing was that his philosophy was plan everything everywhere. And then come back and look. And when you see this plant grows good in this spot, then that spot becomes the place that you plant and cultivate this plant. And when you see this plant pretty much grows everywhere, when nothing will grow in a place, then put that plant there. And when you see these two plants grow together and they do well together, then plant those plants together in the future. And let nature tell you what the answer is. Because what he said, and I think he's absolutely right, is you might find two or three plants, they grow really well together, like as a guild, on this side of the mound. And on the other side of the mound, they don't. Well, you're, they're only separated, you know, if they're literally on the opposite side of the mound, they're separated by like nine feet. But the microclimate's different. So it may not be that this plant discourages this plant. Or it may not be that this plant encourages this plant. It may be that the microclimate is suitable for all three of them here and only one of them over here. And when people started asking him about specifics with companion planting, you know, does this go with that? Or he just waved his hand like, no, 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 don't, don't. Like, that's not even worth worrying about. You, you don't, you don't have time to sit there and say this plant goes with this thing and this plant, and don't put alliums with this. Just plant. And if you plant enough then nature will show you what works and what doesn't work. And one of my problems with companion planting, when it, we get it down to, you know, put this with that, don't put this with that, is I think a lot of the results are simply anecdotal. Uh, this, you know, people have come to these conclusions. And then, in the day of the Internet, once someone says it, if it gets repeated two or three times, it becomes an everybody knows. Then it ends up on a spreadsheet in Wikipedia And then people really believe it's true. So now there's probably people that go, well, you can't plant mustard and broccoli next to each other. Well, why? Because, you know, broccoli's a brassia, and you're not supposed to plant mustards with brassias. And somebody's like, oh, dude, mustard's a brassia. And they won't believe them. Like, they won't even look it up because you just know. And I think that's a lot of what's happened here. And then, you know, people are always looking to write books. So people have written books on this. And you can't write a book based on what I just said. You write a book on the entire system level thinking, but you can't write a book on companion planning that basically says, plan everything everywhere and let nature tell you the answer. 
Because it's that simple. And I do think that it's that simple. I also think that over time, you will find places where you're not really going to polyculture anymore. I've got one bed now that I'm like, and it's not a huge bed. It's a 21-gallon uh, painting tray that's kind of run as a wicking bed. And it's kind of a shady area. But you know what does the really good there? Garlic chives. So you know what? I'm going to get two packages of garlic chive seeds. And I'm just going to pepper it. Throw a little bit of soil on top of it. Give it a little bit of a fertility boost. And it grows chives. That's what it does. If something else shows up there, you know, I'll pop some nasturtiums in there or whatever. And if they do okay, they do okay. There's some uh, volunteer dill coming up in there. We'll use that. But primarily that bed is going to be, okay, now i got all the garlic chives I could ever want from this bed. Some of my beds, like out of my aviary, I do a lot of other plants in there with them, but they are pepper production systems. I don't think it has to be all or nothing. And I think it has a lot to do with, you know, how big your, your property is, how big your area to plant is and things like that. But I just don't think we should get stodgy on it. And, and I, I really think a lot of it, like you don't put this with that is just bull. It's just bull because almost every, everything I see with a rule like that, I've seen those two things grow together. I've seen those two things grow together. Now, I do think there may be the case that if you got a place where this thing that loves acid does really good, and you got a thing where this thing that really is more of an alkaline uh, plant does really good in alkaline soils, and you plant them together, unless you have significant stratification layers, and unless we're talking perennials here, you're probably going to have one not do well because it doesn't. They don't do well in the same soil types or the same microclimates or the same moisture levels. Now, what's the exception I talked about with stratified soils? If you have deep soils, you can take all the sample cores you want, mix the soil together, and send it off to get tested. But you're going to find that you will have stratified layers in that soil where some of it is more acidic and some of it is more alkaline. And perennials that are deep-rooted will find the stratified layer that gives them more of what they're looking for. And they will put a lot of root mass laterally into that. I learned that from Bill Mollison. But that generally can't happen with annuals because they don't have the intensive long-term root systems to be able to make it happen. So if you got something that just hates alkalinity and you're trying to plant it with alfalfa, it's probably not going to do well. And it's not really about the two plants not liking it, so the two plants liking different things. So hopefully that helps you guys. I will put a link to the page on Wikipedia, but I would not get too wrapped up in it based on such an obvious flaw. All right. With that, let's go ahead and wrap the show up today. Remember, you can always support my show by becoming a member of the MSB. That's the Member Support Brigade. All you got to do to do that, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. And military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responders, etc., all of you qualify for a discount. Email me, jack, at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC discount in the subject line before you join, and I'll send you that discount code. And that applies to active duty, retired, or prior service. So if you used to be an EMT, you were in the military, you qualify for that discount. All right. We also have another way you can support us, and that's just by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, where as long as you start shopping there, you help us no matter what you eventually buy. And... Uh, Probably stuff that you were going to buy anyway, so why not start there and help support the show that you listen to daily? Uh, item of the day today from T-SPAS, though, where I do my reviews for you, is Frontier Whole Chamomile Flower Tea. 
Frontier Whole Chamomile Flower Tea. So, tea doesn't sound very survival-y, does it? Well, it's, it is an herb. It's chamomile is a medicinal herb. It has a lot going on that it can help with, especially as like for skin irritations and, and what have you. Basically, make a a very strong chamomile tea, let it cool down, of course, and you can use it as a skin wash. Um, it has, it, yeah, definitely has uses as a botanical for things like rinsing your hair with and stuff like that. So it's got some, you know, shit at the fan medicinal uses. It's calming. Uh, it's a great tea to kind of relax with, to help you go to sleep if you have problems with that. During a shit at the fan, that may be the case. So we can make the case of the survival, but you know what I do, guys. I, I tell you what works and what I actually use. Well, I use chamomile uh, tea as just a tea, and I use it to make blended teas that we drink in our home all the time, the morning blend tea, uh, spearmint orange tea, and uh, three flowers blend, which is for making meat. I have this all written up on the website where you can take a look at it. You find it at tspaz.com or survivalpodcast.com and scroll down. You'll see my most recent reviews that way. But the big thing here is I believe in saving money, and I believe that is a modern survival topic. And you can go out and you can buy a little box of chamomile tea for about $6.00, with a few little tea bags in there. Or for about 20 bucks, you can get a pound of chamomile. A chamomile, a pound of chamomile is a lot of chamomile. It is, you, you will be blown away by how much a pound is and how much tea it makes. You could, if you beekeepers, a uh, really great way to help strengthen your bees, make chamomile tea, take the tea out, and then use that tea as your water for your sugar feed for your bees. It's really fantastic for them. Again, don't put the chamomile flowers in the pot with the sugar syrup or you will make an ever-loving mess. Infuse the water, remove the chamomile, add the sugar. It is fantastic. Uh, it also helps prevent mold. So if you're doing microgreens or something like that, misting with cam strong chamomile tea in a misting bottle or any kind of where you get dampening off mold, etc., excellent for that. I always used it when I did uh, uh, sunflower spots for my ducks. I would just, when I make my five-gallon bucket full of soaked sunflower seeds, throw a small handful of chamomile in there. Because it's cheap, I can afford to do it. I couldn't do it with a $6 a box little tea bag tea. The big thing with this brand that I recommend, uh, Frontier Whole, uh, is that it is, in fact, a whole tea product. It is full-size blossoms. I've seen a lot of loose chamomile teas that looks like a powder. It clogs stuff up like a French press or uh, a tea infuser. It doesn't work really well, and it doesn't have the good smell. It doesn't have the good flavor. This stuff is buttery is the best way I can describe the flavor of it. Give it a try. Frontier, Frontier Organics Whole Chamomile Flower Tea item of the day. And you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Song of the day today and the end of spiritual week is actually in some ways very similar to other songs we've had this week. It's by a band called Switchfoot, and the name of the song is The World You Want. I played World for you for Five for Friday and Wednesday. This comes from a different angle on it, but it's kind of the same message. And the question is, is this the world you want? Is this the world you want? What you see around you, there's good and bad. starts out with kids laughing. There's actually a part where the kids are part of the chorus. They recorded that when they were in South Africa with these children. But when they went to South Africa, they saw this incredible you know, dichotomy of incredibly wealthy and incredibly poor. And as they traveled the world, they saw that. And this is a big part of this, you know, what's behind this song. 
the thing with this song, though, is, is the point is exactly what I said about world. You're creating the world around you every day. So when you look around at things and you think that's wrong or that's wrong, is that the world you want? And can you do something about it? And I think that one of the problems that we get into when we look at music like this is the belief that, well, we can change the whole world. But you really, you can't change the whole world. You can influence the whole world. It's the butterfly effect. But there's something you can change. There's something you can make right. There's something you can do that no one else can quite do the way that you do. So is this the world you want? And I'm including the world that is your backyard. Is, is it the way you want it? Is your family the way you want it? Is your job the way you want it? Is your life the way you want it? Is this the world you want? If not, the only one that can really make a difference and change that and create the world you do want in your life is you. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Your religion, every breath is your religion. 